If you have a Bible, could you please turn with me to Acts chapter 24. We are going to do 24, 25, and 26 this morning. <laughs> I'm not going to read it all because I worked it out that would take over 20 minutes to do on its own. These are difficult, uh, difficult texts to preach, and I will say as well, they're probably difficult sermons potentially to listen to, but this is the Word of God, and we believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for us. And one of the things that I said last week as we looked at 21, 22, and 23 is that one of the reasons why these narratives have been put in by Luke, is to show the accuracy and the validity and the truthfulness of the account of the early church. When we hear about miracles and demons being cast out and Gentiles being brought into the church and, and people being raised from the dead and all these kind of things, it is important for us to rem remember that Luke is a historian, that he is accurately showing places, people, names, events. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. Let's ask ourselves first the question, where are we in the book of Acts? Let me catch you up to speed. Paul, in chapter 21, went to Jerusalem to deliver financial aid to the church in Jerusalem on behalf of the Gentile churches throughout the Roman Empire. The Jews in Jerusalem stirred a riot up against him. Paul was arrested by the Romans, and he was about to be flogged, and then he says, I am a Roman citizen. You can't do that. He is then hauled away before the Jewish Sanhedrin. As the Romans, confused, try to work out what are the charges against this man, Paul? What is the problem? Paul manages to, on his own, incite a riot in the Sanhedrin by pushing the Pharisees and the Sadducees against one another. I love that. And he is then taken into custody again by the Romans. A plot is then made to assassinate Paul by at least 40 Jewish men. And so the Romans take him to Caesarea. I read this week that over 80% of the soldier, Roman soldiers in Jerusalem were used to take Paul to Caesarea. This was a big thing. And in Caesarea, he is directly told by the Lord in Acts 23.11, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul is of the impression now that he will make it to Rome because his Lord Jesus Christ has told him. And he says, sweet, I'm going to make it to Rome and there I will testify about Christ. What we're going to do, as I said, I'm not going to read all three chapters. What we're going to do is I'm going to do a brief overview of the flow of these three chapters, 24, 25, 26, which is a series of court cases, three court cases. 
you're a law student, this is great. If you're not, you probably skip these parts of Acts or read them very, very fast. Don't. There's wonderful stuff in there. We're going to look at the three charges that are levied against Paul and how he answers them. And then I want us to look at two key parts of the story. Paul in private with Governor Felix and his wife at the end of chapter 24, and then a little bit of Paul's testimony to King Agrippa in chapter 26. And from there we'll just pull out a couple of things. This is one of those texts where it's not, here's some application for you, here's some application for you. It's narrative. It's, it's narrative. But there are things that we can learn. And Paul's example in these passages is, is a wonderful example of care and protection for the church and real selflessness. Um, I'm amazed the more I study this at how humble and selfless Paul is. He really just gives his life to make things better for everyone else. Chapter 24 starts with Paul before the governor Felix. The Jews bring out a man by the name of Tertullus the lawyer. So interested in winning this court case, the Jews hire a man who's probably not even a Jew. They hire a Roman, Tertullus, to be their lawyer before Governor Felix. They accuse him of inciting riots and profaning the temple. Luke's narrative so far shows that most of their charges are complete lies. Paul responds by saying the charges are false. And really, this is a debate over the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul is kept in jail for two years as Governor Felix wants popularity with the Jews. Then at the start of 25, we have a new governor. And I'll say this. Governor Felix is so bad at his job that the Romans get rid of him and put a new governor called Festus in charge. The Jews ask for Paul to be sent back to Jerusalem because they want to try and kill him in an ambush on the way. But Paul, because he's a Roman citizen, wants to be tried by Caesar, so he appeals to Caesar. Then, Festus the new governor, can't quite work out exactly what the problem is with Paul, and he brings in King Agrippa, who is related to the, uh, the Herod dynasty, and Bernice, who's his sister, who also happens to be his wife, um, and Agrippa is the king of Judea. He gets brought in by the governor, try and work out what these charges are. They can't really find anything wrong. And in chapter 26, Paul tells Agrippa a wonderful retelling of his testimony, of his past life as a Pharisee, and how he used to kill Christians, and nails in on the real issue. The Jews hate Paul because they deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul keeps telling his testimony before Agrippa, and chapter 26 ends with King Agrippa of Judea telling the governor Festus that if Paul had not appealed to Caesar, they should have just let him go, let him go for your free man. 
We're left with the understanding that Paul has kept himself in jail. He has kept himself in custody for a reason. We'll see what that is soon. So, that's what happens in 24, 25, and 26. I really do encourage you to to read them yourself. And uh, we have three charges. So what I want to do is I'll start reading in chapter 25, verses 7 to 12. There are three charges against Paul. And here he is in front of the new governor, Festus. This is the word of God. Verse 7. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges? before me, but Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar then you shall go. We see a summary here of the charges against Paul, that he is against the temple, he is against the law of the Jews, and he is against Caesar. Try and put your lawyer hat on. I know some of you watch Making a Murder and TV shows like that. We need to understand something important. What makes all of this very complicated is that the Jews from Jerusalem have been bringing religious charges against Paul. But they know something. The people with the true power in this region are the Romans. The Jews are simply living underneath the Romans' care and protection. And therefore they need to suck up to them if they want anything done. And the Jews know that the Roman governors would be unwilling to convict Paul purely on religious grounds. The Romans are not in the business of working out what's heresy and what's not as far as Judaism goes and Christianity. So what do they do? What do you do if you want Paul killed, you want to make his life horrible, what do you do when you've got theological evidence and you're trying to get Caesar to punish him? You add a political element to it. So they have to say he is causing riots, he is disturbing the peace that the the Romans have so wonderfully kept, supposedly, And they need to say that he is going against Caesar's laws. That he is a rebel and he is guilty of treason. John Stott says, The prolongation of the trial was due to the fact that the charge was political and yet the evidence was theological. That's our problem here. The first charge is that Paul is 
against the temple. The charge is that he has brought a Gentile in, in chapter 21. He brought a Greek in. And Paul says, the reality is, no one saw me in the temple with this Greek. And he said he was found there ceremonially ceremonially clean. Paul had no interest in stirring up a riot. He He tells Felix in chapter 24, he says, because he was there to bring financial aid to the churches in Jerusalem. If I'm there to bring the money, why on earth would you say I was there to stir up a riot? I was there to bless the Christians that are, that are in the church. And Paul brings up another fact, and he shows himself to be acquainted with Roman law. To make matters worse, the Jews who made the charge aren't even present. There are no witnesses to this fact, and the people that allege that he defiled the temple by bringing a Greek into inner court aren't around. And he goes on to say that he was found before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, and he says, even the Sanhedrin didn't think I was guilty. The only people that found me guilty of this charge were the Sadducees on the Sanhedrin council, And the reason for that is, is because they're against the resurrection. Paul says, there's nothing to this charge. There's nothing to substantiate it. The second charge is that Paul is against the law. And it says the law of the Jews. The Old Testament. To Felix, he says in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 24, he says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid but down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul is saying this Jesus that he worships, is nothing except the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, the promise of a Messiah. Paul is saying, I am being consistent with our scriptures. He says the way of Jesus is simply the fulfillment and the full flowering of Judaism. Paul would say that all throughout the Old Testament scriptures there is this belief that one day God will judge the living and the dead, there will be a resurrection, and all will come before him. And he's saying, why am I being held responsible for teaching something false? This Jesus, this resurrection from the dead, this gospel, this is the Messiah. This is our scriptures fulfilled. In chapter 26, verses 6 to 8, he says, Now I stand here in trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews. O King Agrippa, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Things have gotten so crazy that the testimony of the scriptures, even amongst the Jews, 
that there would be a Messiah, that there would be a resurrection from the dead, is just simply pushed out of sight, out of mind. You are charging me simply with following God's word. And the amazing thing throughout the book of Acts, and one thing that we should always notice, no one attempts to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you've been with us for most of this year, nowhere in Acts do people say the resurrection didn't happen. Nowhere are we shown evidence. Nowhere does come someone come out and say, hey, we've got a body, or hey, um, he's still dead. All they have to do. But none of these people in the same postal code as Jesus' tomb bother, bother, to give evidence. So, the allegation, Paul is against the law, he's against the temple, those are the theological reasons. And here comes the political spin. The third one, is that he is against Caesar. Caesar, at this time, was a man by the name of Nero. Not the restaurant in Palmerston North, Nero. Nero winds up killing Paul, just so we know this. But not, ultimately, because of these charges. When Festus offered Paul the option of being tried in Jerusalem by the Jews, Paul chose not to. And this is a very deliberate decision. And as a result, this is why Luke, in his narrative, has constantly brought up Roman magistrates and governors and lawyers saying the Christians are innocent. They've done no wrong. They're good citizens. Chapter 18 and, and, and before. Most of the time the charges against the Christians has been that they are a new religion. And a new religion would require would require acceptance from Caesar. Caesar alone has the power to say, I give this new religion freedom and liberty to carry out their beliefs. A new religion would require Caesar to say, yep, they're good. But Judaism already had that freedom. The Jews already had that freedom. And so constantly Luke has shown that Christianity is simply a different way of looking at the Old Testament scriptures compared to how the Jews understand it. And what that means is that this is not a new religion. This is simply an outworking of the Old Testament, and therefore, they have freedom. They can practice Christianity. They can worship together on a Sunday. They can do all those things. Paul does something unbelievably gutsy. He appeals to Caesar. Paul is, in a sense, saying to the governor Festus, he says, if you think I've wronged Caesar, that's fine. Prove it. If I'm wrong, you can kill me. Paul is saying, I trust the system that you will do justly. And if I am innocent, you will not kill me. 
150 years after this court case, around about the year 2000, uh, 200 A.D., the early church father, Tertullian, would write to Rome against this exact same charge that Christians disturbed the peace and were harmful to society. Tertullian wrote to the emperor and he said, If you want to find a good citizen, then you will find them among the followers of Jesus. We have a revolutionary message, but that does not mean we're constantly causing uprisings and riots. Christians are not just the people freed from sin, freed from bondage to Satan and their own personal sin, but they're able to live in cold and set free to live peaceable, honorable, and quiet lives. And I mean that. That doesn't mean you never offend anyone, but what that does mean is that you do seek to be a good, law-abiding citizen, unless the Caesar or the Prime Minister tells you to do something that disobeys God's Word. We are citizens in the world. And Paul has constantly mentioned throughout this time that he has sought to live life with a clear conscience before God. He brings it up often. And he is able to say he will be tried by Caesar because he knows that Caesar is not the highest judge. Caesar might think he is a God. Caesar might think he is the highest judge. But he's not. The God of Scripture is the highest judge. Caesar has his power because God has given it to him. Caesar is in his places because God has allowed him to be there. And so in Paul's mind, if Caesar judges justly and lets him free, great. If Caesar judges unjustly and has Paul killed, He just loses his life. It's not the end of the world because all Caesar can do is kill his body. But God has the power to kill his body and throw him into hell. Paul knows that God has judged him already. God has judged him innocent in Christ and that his future is secure. Paul lives his life knowing The person that matters, the one that matters, has said, I'm good to go. And that gives him freedom to go before Caesar in what appears to be a very risky move. And so Paul is told by Festus, you're going to go to Rome and appeal before Caesar. This is the amazing thing. Why is Paul so keen to go to Rome? If we see, we see in this narrative that if Paul had simply answered the charges and said, I'm innocent, because those charges were not substantiated correctly, Paul would be set free. Both Agrippa, both Festus say that. Why does Paul want to go to Rome? Paul wants to go to Rome because he sees this as a test case, not simply for himself, but for the whole church. He wants to establish the Christian faith under the umbrella of Roman law that tolerated religions like Judaism. 
He wants to argue before the Romans that Christianity is simply the outflowing and fulfillment of Judaism with the Jewish Messiah as its king of, an earth, of a heavenly kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. It is no threat to Caesar. And therefore, this Christianity deserves the protection under civil law that Judaism was given. Paul stays in jail. He stays with just with Fest, uh, sorry, just with Felix for two years. Two years just in jail. Waiting. Waiting patiently. This whole thing takes about five years. It is a long, long, long time that Paul is in jail. And he knows he's innocent. Can you imagine that? He decides that the best use of his time is to be put in prison so he can win some religious freedom for the rest of the churches. So he can make their lives just a little bit easier. He suffers to bless others. He suffers for the good and protection of the church. Jesus drank the cup of wrath. Paul, too, drinks the cup of suffering. Not to save, not to wash away sin, but to bless and protect his brothers and sisters. So those are the three charges of which Paul is innocent. And I want to finish with two key stories. Look at the end of chapter 24. 24-22-27. This is an amazing, amazing moment in Paul's ministry. This is motivating. This is really encouraging. This is so bold what Paul does. Verse 22 of Acts 24. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Okay? That's nice. That's a nice thing to do. Paul gets to have visitors. He doesn't just rot in jail. He gets to have visitors. 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. The governor, Felix, invites Paul to talk about faith in Christ. He says, wonderful, tell me about Jesus Christ. This is not a good man. 
Antonius Felix was the first slave in the history of the Roman Empire to become the governor of a Roman province. He became governor not through his personal effort, but because of a childhood friend that was connected to the Emperor Claudius. During Felix's governorship in the main city in this region is Jerusalem, insurrections and anarchy dramatically got worse and worse and worse because he was a brutal man. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that he repeatedly crucified the leaders of various uprisings. So he made life hell for people, and then when people came up against him, he just crucified the leaders. The Roman historian, Tacitus, described him as a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. A hard, power-hungry man. It is, he says, we're told at the end, that he kept Paul in prison to make the Jews happy. He wanted fame, he wanted adoration. Says that he has a wife, Drusilla, his third wife, and her second husband. Drusilla was the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa I, the king who killed James in chapter 12. Her uncle was the king Herod who killed John the Baptist. And her grandfather was the Herod who tried to kill Jesus. Felix convinced her to leave her husband and marry him. And that gives us the background to what Paul says to them. Paul spoke to them about righteousness. Righteousness is what God requires. Righteousness has to do with what God has revealed in his law. I can just imagine Paul standing in front of them, reasoning to them about the fact that they should not commit sexual immorality because God has declared no, none are to fornicate and commit adultery. He reasoned to them about righteousness. He reasoned them to them about self-control. We see this over and over in 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Self-control is mastery over oneself and it's usually related to sexual immorality. What's Paul talking to these people about? He's calling them sinners and he's telling them that they're sexually immoral before God. Well, Paul's in prison, remember? And the last thing he reasons them with them about is called the judgment to come. What an absolutely courageous, almost foolish thing to do. Felix was the earthly judge of a particular part of the Roman Empire at that time. Paul is supposedly sitting there in prison, and every time he gets brought before Felix, Paul's on trial. And what Paul does is turns it around. Paul is demonstrating to Felix that there will be a judgment of the living and the dead, and that while Felix might think that Paul is on trial, really, Felix and his wife are on trial before God.
there was a higher court. Paul had trusted in Christ and had his sins forgiven. He reasoned with righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. Paul, are you trying to get yourself killed? Verse 25 tells us, Felix was alarmed. Some translations, the word here is like, Felix is angered, taken aback. The word could also mean convicted. Paul struck him deep with his words. And he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Taken aback, convicted, a bit offended, maybe realizing the truth of what Paul had said, he says, go away. And he left him to rot for two years. There's a lesson in here about procrastination. Derek Thomas says, when the Spirit of God is moving in your heart and in your soul, when the Word of God begins to do its work, and convict you of your own sin, of God's righteousness, of the judgment to come, that's the Spirit's work. What will you do? And I say this even as a Christian. Sometimes we sin, we know we've sinned, we know we've done wrong, and we simply tempted to procrastinate, to forget. Felix procrastinated. Felix put this off. Felix hoped to get a bribe out of Paul. He wanted some money. The longer he kept Paul away, the longer that he suppressed the truth, the more bribery appealed to him. Out of sight, out of mind. The lesson for us there is that when we are convicted of our own sin, we must repent and turn to Christ and seek forgiveness. God is open for us because of what Christ has done. The last one is found in chapter 26, verses 13 to 18. I want to read a little piece of Paul's testimony before King Agrippa, the king of Judea. And as we begin thinking about the baptism that we're having now after our, our service, what a, a wonderful picture of conversion this text shows us. Verse 13 of Acts 26. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins 
and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul tells this picture of the fullness of his conversion. And if you have a Bible whereby the words of Jesus are in red, any of you have that? If you have a Bible with the words of Jesus in red, this section lights up. Because it is mostly given by Jesus Christ. This is a section found nowhere else in Scripture. This is, um, this is some, some words of Christ that are not found in Acts chapter 9, the story of Paul's conversion. And Paul received in Acts 9 his commission as an apostle directly from the risen Lord. He was converted. He went from being a hater of Jesus and the church to the most well-known Christian, arguably, in history. And this language that Jesus uses of opening eyes of light and darkness comes straight out of Isaiah 41 to 43. And I've mentioned this many times, but this is such a key, crucial text in the book of Acts. In Isaiah 41, Israel are called before God to demonstrate to the nations, to demonstrate to the Gentiles, the futility of idols, the futility of false worship. All of us are created to worship and serve God, to have our hearts continually seeking satisfaction in Him. When we worship created things, even good things, we commit idolatry. And we show that we are blind to the truth of God, who alone is worthy of our affections. But the great problem in Isaiah 41 to 43, this section, is that Israel themselves were blind and therefore not able to bear witness to the futility of this idol worship. And they were participating in the same thing that the nation, the Gentiles, were doing. And in this text here, we see a stunning summary that Jesus, as John says in John 1, is the light who has come into the world to open our eyes, to rescue us from our spiritual blindness, to set us free from our captivity to sin. Paul is commissioned by Jesus to fulfill his mission to bear witness to the Gentiles, the light of the gospel. That through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we might be born again, our spiritual eyes opened, and we go towards Jesus and find in Him forgiveness of sin, true worship instead of idolatry, and conversion, we see this language, from the slavery of Satan to the power of God. Paul testifies in front of the gripper. Paul testifies while he is in prison. That Jesus is better. Jesus is worthy of being Lord. Jesus is able to forgive sin. And Jesus is able to transform lives. And because this has captured Paul's heart, he patiently endures all these years in prison for the sake of his Lord and the church that his Lord had bought by 